Talking Time with Lucas and Alicia is proudly supported and sponsored by Code Sydney. Code Sydney supporting non-profits to develop online opportunities and online engagement programs, websites and other spread areas that will allow you to push your message out to the people you need to get to. Code Sydney, C-O-D-E dot Sydney online. Check it out today. Sunday night means it's time to talk time. It also means you get to hear the dulcet tones of this fat bald guy sitting here and this beautiful <laughs> human being sitting on the other end of the microphone and also Alicia. How you doing, Alicia? <laughs> I don't know which split personality of mine you're talking to, but um, hey, Lucas, and happy Sunday evening. Mate, how was, uh, how, mate, we're getting closer to going back to school, mate, back to work. Uh, how, how's that feeling for you? Little anxiety there, as, as always. Um, but with that comes excitement as well. New year, uh, new cohort of kids coming through. So it's definitely exciting. How about yourself? Yeah, same, mate. I look forward to it. So get another get a chance to go and help some more kids that might not have had a great summer and uh, absolutely and, and come back in and need, uh, need a little bit of a reset. So, um, mate, we've got international guests coming out the yin yang this season, and it doesn't excitement. Uh, doesn't stop here. And this is a fan favorite. Don't tell her this because she'll get a big head. But this is one of my favorite people in the world of criminology. And I mean the world. Um, don't don't tell her. Keep it secret. Because I don't want to, you know, thinking, thinking, getting a big head, you know, blowing up. But the work that this uh, lovely person has done and continues to do worldwide is second to none. And she represents, um, represents herself and represents Australia, amazingly, and this is the amazing Belinda Wheeler, who's Senior Program Associate at the Vera Institute of Justice in Washington, D.C. Belinda, how you doing, mate? I'm doing great, mate. How you doing? Hey, mate, when's the last time you called <laughs> someone mate with what you're doing over there? <laughs> um, you know, it's I, I often use g'day and mate quite a lot. You'd be surprised. And it's uh, it's always very warmly received over here, which is wonderful because that's always how I spoke um, back home. Uh, in Queensland when I was when I was there so yep you'd be surprised how much I use both of them <laughs> mate tell us the Belinda Wheeler story we've spoken to you before very very early on in the piece and we know we want to touch base with you again because of your new role you were at Claflin Uni and now you're obviously with Vera but we want to know about about you what you got how you got to where you are what you're doing and what this new role looks like yeah, no worries at all. Um, yeah, it's really exciting. I've been at Vera Institute of Justice for approximately six months. Um, I'm a senior program associate with the Unlocking Potential team and the Unlocking Potential team at Vera, which is a national nonprofit here with over 300 employees and they have centers in Los Angeles, New Orleans and DC and New York. Sorry, it's still a little bit early in the morning here. Um, yeah, so, so those four parts of the country and with the Unlocking Potential team, which is the one that I'm on, it specifically handles technical assistance to over 130 second chance Pell institutions who are offering prison education programs um, to students who are currently incarcerated. And so we, so we help the educational institutions and also their correctional partners to try to make sure um, that there's good quality, uh, scalability and equity in the programming that's happening here in the US. So it's very exciting. 
Mate, uh, I, I want to know why the jump. So you were doing some great stuff, obviously, at Claflin, and you were doing um, fantastic things. And, and, and I would also like you to give just a little bit of an update for our international listeners as, as to what PAL is. Because yes, we, yes. we know, but they, I think it's important they need to know. But then after you do that, if you can tell us a little bit about why the jump from Claflin and, and, and what's next. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, yes, um, Second Chance Pell or Pell Grants themselves are national grants that go to people who have low incomes who are wanting to pursue second post-secondary education. So um, when we're there's a there's millions of people throughout the United States who automatically qualify for Pell Grants anyways. And we also see that, you know, people who are currently incarcerated more often than not have a very, had a very small income prior to coming into prison. And obviously while they are incarcerated, their income is virtually, virtually zero. So Pell Grants um, have been available in this country for a long time, but in 1994, the US government enacted a Crime Act bill and what it did was it stopped Pell money uh, or Pell eligibility for people who were currently or formerly incarcerated. And in December of 2020, uh, then President Trump actually signed into law under the Consolidation Act. There's a section of this, it's like a 5,000 page document, over 5,000 page document, the Consolidation Act. But within that act was this, um, the, the Pell Reinstatement or uh, FAFSA Simplification Act, which includes Pell Reinstatement to people who are currently or formerly incarcerated. And that, that group of individuals come approximately July of 2023 they will now become Pell eligible for the first time since 1994. The only wow. exception, the only exception to that has actually been those second chance Pell sites, uh, which was um, what I had when I was at Claflin University. I received a US Department of Education uh, second chance Pell status for Claflin University, which allowed us to actually start prison education programming at Claflin. And it was actually, you know, I was doing, and I appreciate you calling out the good work I was doing at Claflin. It is true. I was doing some really wonderful work in Claflin and, and that work that work continues with my absence. But the reason why I transitioned from Claflin University to the Vera Institute of Justice was because of that um, FAFSA Simplification Act being signed into law in December of 2020, because it it said to me, it said, Belinda, you know, you're doing a, a good a good amount of work in this small location in South Carolina, rural South Carolina, but now with the Pell uh, reinstatement, the Pell expansion um, moving forward that I was like, you know, you really need to help people on that national level. You need to move from that small, small area that you were working on in South Carolina to the national level to try to make sure that as the country prepares for this Pell reinstatement, that all the checks and balances are kind of put in place on that national scale so that we can really protect, you know, the students, this, this massive number of students, which are now going to have access to Pell grants and trying to make sure that that programming, you know, again, is, is, offers high quality, that there's scalability, um, and that there's equity. Because one of the things that we've found with um, Second Chance Pell grants with the current sites, and also um, there's some 
prison education program that of course has been continuing without Pell dollars. Those have been dollars that um, with grants and things of that nature. Some of the programs that we're seeing right now, um, that equity is not really there. Like for example, like while a prison might have say a population of 70% African-Americans, 20% Caucasians and 10%, you know, Asian-Americans, indigenous Americans, or, you know, other populations. When you look at a lot of these classrooms, you might have the absolute reverse of that. You might have, you know, 70 to 80% Caucasian-Americans, you know, 10% African-Americans and, you know, and 10% other populations. And we really wanna make sure that as Pell is expanded, um, that you know the classrooms really reflect the uh, the overall prison population, and that they are high quality. I love it. I love it. It's 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 great to know that you. It's great to know that you got someone that's 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 sort of you know, acting as the uh, almost like the the, the 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 policeman or the overseer of this space to make sure that you know that that quality is getting through to the people that need quality because. I'm sure that there's I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are uh, shortcutting in this process and they're seeing you know this chunk of money that's come available. I know here in Australia, Belinda, is that we have something called the NDIS, which is the National Disability Scheme, and the amount of cowboys that have entered that space, you know, providing services and providing things, and we don't have that. Uh, we don't have that almost judge of, of, of someone like the Vera Institute that keeps an eye on this stuff. And, and you know, what, what you're doing is amazing, mate. It's, um, it's, Absolutely. it's, it's fantastic. And it just, what's the old saying that the, uh, that the, the here in, um, in Australia in politics, it used to be keep the bastards honest. And that's, uh, that's what, <laughs> that's what you're doing, mate. That's what you're doing. Well, I will, I will just interject really quickly if it's okay. I, prob I probably wouldn't, um, and I know you didn't mean it this way, I probably wouldn't use the word police or judge myself. Yeah, I think Vera, yeah, yeah you know, I, th I think Vera's just trying to make sure that, you know, it really is that, you know, the three kind of pillars that we have in the unlocking potential is like scale, quality and equity. And I yeah. think um, we're, we're certainly helping, um, helping government and other entities kind of make sure that there are those guardrails, but, you know, always having the students first and foremost in our, in our mind. But we're definitely, again, trying to, um, you know, it, it really just goes back to that scale, quality and equity. And yeah, that's just trying to help people understand um, how they can carefully enter this space so that hopefully uh, no student is kind of being taken care of, you know, um, taking advantage of. But yeah, I, yeah. I totally understand what you're saying. Yep. Beautiful. Hey, Belinda, can you, can you tell us your thoughts on the importance of these um, prison education programs? Yeah, yeah, um, they're, they're amazing. You know, I've, I've had the chance, you know, personally, I'm, I'm not a, um, I don't have lived experience myself, but the work that I've been doing with, you know, entities in this space and, you know, Vera and other entities have been doing a lot of amazing work well before I came into this space. And I'm just very fortunate in this last six months that, you know, I've been able to, um, you know, join the Vera team, who was an organization that actually provided technical assistance to Claflin University, and it was actually how I really got to um, work more with them. But yes, the prison education programs, they really are so transformative. And, you know, I don't know, education in of itself, you know, is so transformative. You know, I know when I was in Australia, I didn't I didn't have, and I don't want to make this more about myself because obviously it's about the students first and foremost, but I know when I was in Australia, um, 
at that particular time in the early 90s, it seemed to me that the landscape was that you either needed to have real, uh, lots of money to get to, you know, to higher yeah. ed. Um, and this is not TAFE related, you know, this is more like the, you know, the, the larger universities as opposed to technical schools. Um, but, you know, you either needed to have a lot of money or you needed to have good grades. And I didn't have either, um, you know, and it was actually me coming to America that actually, and America, from my from my experience, seems to have more um, access, needs provides a lot more access to students to students, to individuals, you know, to kind of achieve their dream. And that's the reason why I was fortunate to be able to go from bachelor's all the way up to the PhD and kind of do the work that I've done. And um, I think in America, you know, again, you know, there, there's so much detail and openness in a lot of different places that, you know, obviously like a place like a Yale or Stanford or something like that, there's going to be a lot more, you know, it's going to be a lot more strict. And that doesn't, again, say anything about the lower quality of other programs here in America. It doesn't. It's just that some educational institutions have a more inclusive kind of policy about the students that they will um, allow into these spaces. And I think with prison education programs, we're seeing a lot of, you know, um, you know, top tier, you know, institutions, you know, be in this space, but then also, um, you know, those organizations, those educational entities that are, you know, way more inclusive, you know, provide services to, you know, to people, educational opportunities to people who are incarcerated. And um, it just from, from the conversations that I've had, I can't speak for the people who are currently or formerly incarcerated, because again, I don't have that uh, lived experience myself. But from the viewpoint that I have had in this space, both as an educator and um, now in the nonprofit sector, is that it truly is uh, transformative. And I'm very lucky at Vera to walk side by side, working hand in hand, uh, you know, with colleagues who actually have, um, ex you know, had educational experiences while they were incarcerated. And now they work at Vera and in other organizations that I work with as well. So I've really been able to to see it in practice, but then also, you know, be working with colleagues who share with me on a daily basis, just how, you know, transformative that is. Does that make sense, Alicia? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about the things that, um, that happens with Vera? What else do you do? Sure, sure. Um, well, you know, so Vera Institute of Justice itself is in, um, a national nonprofit that has over 300, um, you know, 300 different employees that are working on all sorts of different um, aspects. Um, you know, the, the main mission of the organization itself is to end the overcriminalization and mass incarceration of people of color, mm -hmm. immigrants, and people experiencing poverty. So you can imagine with that kind of mission, there's so many different things going on in different Absolutely. areas of Vera. And you know, for for my one section that I work in, the Unlocking Potential team, it's um, it keeps growing. I think we're just under 15 employees now. It started with only. I believe three or four employees. So it's grown substantially, um, you know, in just over 10 years and we continue to expand. Um, but, you know, for, so I've got, you know, colleagues that are doing technical assistance. So like, again, when I was at Claflin University, there was a technical assistance provider who would reach out to me and others and kind of, you know, help, um, you know, provide resources or information to help us become better at the work we were doing on the ground in our small little location, you know, in South Carolina. So there's some colleagues that do technical assistance. I've got other colleagues 
um, you know, that are doing kind of programming with educational directors at um, at corrections institutions around the country. So kind of providing them resources, helping them um, expand their understanding of, you know, larger post-secondary education in prison programming. And then my specific work that I do with the Unlocking Potential team is really focusing on that one pillar of quality. Um, you know, I work very closely with accreditation agencies and accreditation agencies. Uh, I might actually, going back to that, you know, that term policing, uh, Lucas, I think they, uh. they really, they really do. Uh, and, and I'll say, and I'll use that carefully as well with them, but they really, as accreditation agencies, um, there's six, six regional or seven, seven, what was considered before regional accreditation agencies, which they make sure that those quality measures um, at their, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of educational institutions that they oversee, um, you know, that they're kind of making sure that the systems are moving well at the educational um, institution. And for those accreditation agencies, they haven't always had to really look at the quality of prison education programs because like I said in 1994 when the Crime Act bill took place, you know, a lot, not all, but a lot of those uh, prison education programs just basically shrunk or um, or no longer existed because the, the funding wasn't there anymore. And now we're going to go from, I think right now there's about 300 educational institutions approximately that are providing educational programming to students, whether it's through private funding or whether it's through Second Chance Pell. So accreditation agencies are gonna go from approximately 300 educational institutions to perhaps 3000 wow. um, educational institutions offering um, uh, programming. So my job is to work with those accreditation agencies and, you know, provide them guidance and support as they really prepare to either go from accrediting zero prison education programs to say a thousand, or they go from like five that they might, you know, um, provide um, accreditation for right now to maybe 500. So, wow. so I really work on the quality part of things. Hey, let me ask you a little bit left field question. So go with me on this. Okay. So this, so far this series here, we've had people discussing challenges and issues they faced in education in prison from an indigenous point of view, a transgender point of view, a queer point of view, a female point of view, and a male point of view. What type of programs or what type of involvement, Pell, is there any special focus or is there any special um, insurance that there is additional programming or programming run for some of those minority groups or some of, some of those underrepresented groups when it comes to education? Uh, yes, um, I think that's a that's a great point. And I think that really gets to that one pillar of equity that we're really trying to focus on as well is to is to make sure that whatever classroom population ends up being representative of, um, so say, for example, educational institution X enters a prison facility. Um, we want to make sure that that educational X's uh, institution X, their student population rep inside the classroom is representative of the of the actual 
prison population there. So that's one of the things that we're really working on now. And we, we call it REI, Race, Equity and Inclusion. Um, and I've got a lot of good um, colleagues on my, on my team with Unlocking Potential who are specifically focusing on that and trying to make sure um, that educational institutions are fairly um, and equitably reporting their student demographic so that if we are seeing um, these significant differences between the, for example, the prison population and what's in the classroom, that we can provide guidance and support, um, whether it's to the educational institution or perhaps if it's corrections, um, who's you know, providing this pipeline of students that we're letting corrections hand in hand with their educational institution know that look you know we've really got to make sure that this classroom is more equitable um, both with you know people's bodies in seats you know whether whether physically or virtually in seats hopefully more physically than virtually uh, with education um, but then also making sure that those course offerings as well that's another layer as well as to make sure that um the courses that are being offered to students, uh, particularly students who identify in diverse ways, um, that, that that curriculum that they're given as well while they're incarcerated also has that REI, that race equity and inclusion kind of perspective to it. Does that does that make sense, Lucas? hundred percent, hundred percent, really does, and it's um, it's great that 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 obviously has been covered because it's really been interesting, uh, Belinda. Some of the issues that have come up um, through some of the people that have been on the show have just been really, really interesting things that, that have probably um, challenged some people. I mean, we had a, we had a great, um, we had a great presenter um, back in December, uh, Dwayne um, Antajado and Dwayne talked about um, his challenges um, as a, as a queer man um, in Australian prison in regards to trying to get access to education, access to services, as to access to anything, because there was nothing that was, designed for him if that makes sense because he fitted outside the box and um there wasn't anything per se that he could sort of magnet towards because there was right. nothing designed specifically for him right. Uh, and, right and and then we've had similar questions and discussions with with indigenous guests who have found the same mm -hmm. thing so hey let me ask you this this challenging question again okay is that white australian woman that's been living in the u.s for 20 years is mm -hmm. How do you get to, to, your your word? Obviously, strong and well educated, and, and got a great background in understanding this. Is there ever any challenges you face as being a white woman who's from Australia, and you're discussing education to other people in another country who may be different ethn um, ethnographically to you? Sure, sure, definitely. Um, I think one of the um, I I wouldn't necessarily I personally wouldn't necessarily see it as a challenge in the sense that you know when, whenever I enter a space um, over here I always acknowledge my privilege that is you know coming in as, as I walk in physically or virtually to a space you know people can see that I'm you know that I'm white before I open my mouth they might assume that I'm a, a Caucasian American because I just look like everyone you know yeah. like all, all other white you know white people here in America um, but, you know, I, I immediately kind of acknowledge that privilege of, you know, again, a no lived experience, 
people can see that I'm, you know, physically, physically white or pink or orange or whatever shade I look that morning, because I'm not really sure that white's ever a good way, because I never really, you know, you know what I mean, white people, I don't know, pink. Uh, anyways, um, but then as soon as I open my mouth, then the Australian accent comes into play here too. And, you know, and that also, I think, connotes a level of privilege uh, for me as well, because ha had I had a carceral experience, I'm not sure I would have necessarily been able to get the student visa that first allowed me to be in the United States, uh, you know, to get the H1B visa and then to get, you know, a green card. Like there was a lot of other levels of privilege that came to me that allowed me to actually be in this physical space actually speaking to people. So, so one of the things I'm always very careful of is, you know, A, acknowledging that privilege, um, but then B, working with partners um, and making sure part of my job, I think personally and professionally is, you know, sometimes it's not the best thing for me to be at the front of the room. Sometimes it's my job to make sure that the, you know, that the individuals I'm working with in this space, that I lift them up so that they can be, um, you know, at the front of the room telling their stories, you know, so that I don't always have to be that, uh, you know, that person on the front line saying, hey, I believe this, this and this. I never want to speak for anyone else. Um, you know, I can only speak for myself. And I think, I think, you know, acknowledging that privilege and then showing, leading by example that, you know, I'm not here to speak for you. I'm actually here to be an ally, um, you know, with you and when possible, really, you know, make sure that I'm, you know, placing you at the front of the room if that's where you would like to be, if that's the equitable part of it. Uh, does that make sense, Lucas? No, 100% it does. 100% it does. Abs absolutely. And I suppose one th I want to drop one more at you just before we we, we probably let you go because time's going to start disappearing on us. But I want to know the role uh, that Vera plays. Obviously, you talk about equitable equitable access. Technology is is a huge challenge. I wonder we, we have a great uh, person which I know that you know, uh, Skip Helen Skipper. That's a good friend of the show yes. and someone that that I do a bit of work with and and I speak to regularly and. Skip and I are writing a paper at the moment about the digital divide between yes. when you return home and how does that look from the viewer point of view? How does that look from the space there that you talk about the digital divide and how can you uh, sort of ensure that stuff that's occurring in these PAL programs actually look at that digital divide or potentially to bridge that gap? Yes, definitely. Um, and, you know, again, I, I hate to kind of go back to it again and again, but that quality and equity is a, you know, a really big part of what we do. And I think when you look at a quote unquote traditional student, you know, on a main campus, you know, they get access to, you know, technology, they've had the privilege of, you know, working with technology in other ways, you know, cell phones, internet at home and things of that nature, uh, which is very different from, you know, students who are currently incarcerated who may have never touched a cell phone, for example, don't really know what the internet even is you know, apart from the kiosk, you know, that might be in the prison facility that allows them to send an email. Um, you know, I know when, when my good friend who unfortunately has recently passed, um, he was incarcerated in Florida and he'd been incarcerated for over 30 years, an Indigenous Australian. And he, um, before the kiosks came and then the tablets, he was like, Belinda, what is this? How does this work? Because we, we had talked over the phone and we'd written, we'd corresponded via letters, um, you know, and I could, I could tell as we were communicating via email, his, um, 
his level of access, his level of understanding, you know, what a keyboard is and things like that, he was starting to really get the, you know, get the hang of it. And I think that's one of the things that Vera does too, is to make sure, uh, and this is what we do with accreditation agencies too, is that if a program is accredited um, at a main institution, and then that educational institution wants to take that program to a carceral space, um, that Vera and other nonprofits and allies working in this space ensure that that same level of um, access to, you know, technological services, um, technology in general for research and things like that, that the educational institution in partnership with the corrections tries to make sure that, you know, um, that level of accessibility for students so that they can get used to, you know, working on a computer so that they do understand some of those things. Because again, if you, you know, again, working from this privileged position, but talking with individuals who have had very little access to technology while they were incarcerated and then, you know, leaving that carceral space and, you know, everything is technology, 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 you know, um, so I think, one of the things that we're working with, you know, the government, educational institutions, accreditors, uh, corrections, is to make sure that when we prepare for July of 2023, when the Pell expansion begins, that a lot of those programs that are going to be educational programs that are going to be offered in prisons really make sure that there's a technology component, you know, available to students so that they really can get that um, you know, that experience with technology because, you know, it's going to be so important for them personally, but then also professionally, you know, once once they leave that carceral space. So that's another area that we're really kind of working on to make sure that they get um, equal access to technology as students and that they also, as traditional students on a main campus and also that quality with technology, if that makes sense. It does definitely. And, and, and I, I tell this funny story as a, a person I met when I was away um, who had been inside for the 25 years. I met him at the back end of his 25 years. And I still remember, I still remember him calling me up the second day he came home. And I, I won't use the colorful language that he used, but <laughs> he was standing, he was standing in the um in the in the checkout at Woolworths, which is, is yep. old safe, which is the old Woolies. There you go. There's the Aussie yeah. coming out of here. Um, in Woolies here in Australia. And he rang me. And he's like, what the F is this self-checkout? Oh, yes. I, uh, he absolutely. says to me, goes, I am a crim who's just done 25. <laughs> and now yep. they're trusting me to use material, <laughs> to use technology that I don't understand. And yep. he's like, I'd never forget it. He goes, and he goes, is an F and hand going to come out here and pack my shit up for me? He goes, what, what is, what am I going to do here? And I laughed. I, I laughed at yeah. first, right? I laughed at first. Mm -hmm. But then the 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 academic sort of um, critical thinker came out at me later on in the day, and yep. I was like, "That's really sad yeah. that we're setting that person up for failure." Because yes. the next week he rang me, the next week he mm -hmm. rang me, and he asked about how to set up his on phone MyGov account, which gets his access oh, to yes. all of his Medicare services in Australia, taxation yep. department, health records, and they hadn't done it for this guy. He'd never seen a smartphone. Yes. The phone he used to have, he told me, was one of those flip phone things yes. that had oh, the yeah. hinges on it that used to snap or one of those yep. brick Nokias that he used yep. to throw against the wall and it would bounce back to him and he'd play yes. snake on it. Yep. And so we, we that's why I asked that question because I just think that technology is, the digital divide is such a letdown that we don't concentrate on worldwide 
and it it trips people up and sets them up for failure anyway and if if I could just super quick, I, I know we need to leave can. in a second, but you just um, but super quick. One one of the other things I wanted to mention too is that those wraparound services, you know, for for students who are currently incarcerated, you know, like a lot of the work obviously that Vera does right now in the unlocking potential is that education, but with the with the Pell expansion of July of 2023 and the additional work that Vera is doing in other ways um, is really trying to make sure that educational institutions, again, that go into these carceral spaces, that they're working with nonprofit community partners and others, um, and also on campus as well, to provide those wraparound services, those re-entry mm-hmm. services uh, for, for students so that, you know, uh, whether the educational institution themselves, whether it's corrections, whether it's those, those partners outside that they're all kind of working in partnership with each other to again provide additional um, you know re-entry services so that you know beyond the classroom so that when those people are returning home that hopefully they're getting um, you know a stronger kind of pathway to that uh, just kind of beyond that educational degree or credential if that makes sense so that's another area that um, for example my boss Margaret Dezeriga, she's doing a lot of stuff, including unlocking potential with education, but she's looking at housing, for example, and making sure that, um, you know, those housing opportunities for people with carceral experiences are made available to them, whereas a lot of people are locked out of housing when they when they return home. So those that's just another kind of tidbit, just to kind of, and I mentioned it as a tidbit, but obviously it's huge. It's equally as important, if not more, than the educational side of things. So that's another aspect that, you know, that we do as well. And you're so right it's yeah we need to equip individuals um you know with with all the experiences um support that they need um because the credential itself the educational credential itself isn't enough right there needs to be other kind of resources in that too so yeah you're 100 right lucas my friend as always you are please mate please don't even (laughs) pretend to be don't even pretend you gotta meet my wife she'll tell you that i'm never right um, I hey, can't wait to meet her. I can't I wait know, to meet her one I know. day. We're getting over, we'll be getting over there as soon as all the borders open, mate, and it's all good. But, hey, got to legitimately say to Belinda, mate, I, I, I value your, you as a, as a mate and value you as someone that I know I can drop an email to. And, and you know, a, a couple of weeks ago, you know, this whole battle thing was, was, was kicking my ass and it was an, a text message to you and an instant yep. response back that, 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 that got me sort of recharged and re-revved again. So mm-hmm. I thank you and appreciate you, what you're doing. And I'm speaking for, for literally hundreds of thousands of people that you might not even know that you're influencing and helping, but you are changing lives and I'm not a religious person, but you are God sent. And, and that's the, the honest truth. Oh, man, you are making my head big first thing in the morning, my friend. Well, you know, the, the feeling is mutual uh, to both you and Alicia. I really appreciate the two of you and the and the work that you continue to do. And, you know, for anyone, you know, please feel free to reach out to me at any time, your listeners or, you know, yourself, Lucas and Alicia, you know that you can reach out to me at any time because uh, we work together in partnership to try to make things better. Um, you know, so this is wonderful. I really appreciate you guys a lot. Mate, you're a legend. Hey, Alicia, you know that I'm I'm old and demented. Hey, can you pick? Can you tell us what our website is, please? Because you know that I don't do that stuff real good. Yeah, our I'm website. Divide. I'm the digital divide proof. The technology. I got you work. back. I got you back. Our one-stop shop and our website www.talkingtimepodcast.com.au. Um, check out our Facebook and Messenger 
pages as well, Talking Time with Lucas and Alicia. We're on Twitter at time underscore Lucas and our personal LinkedIn accounts, Lucas Kerry or Alicia Head. Hey, Belinda, awesome. Alicia, awesome. It's amazing sharing a room and a stage with two absolutely powerful and inspirational women. I thank you both for what you do. I thank you listeners for ticking on. I believe we have just scored our 14th country of listeners Alicia, we have got a listener last week. Listener last week from the the Philippines is listening to us now. Wow. Thank you to those listeners in the Philippines. Um, Congratulations. Hey, keep on smiling, legends. And I will uh, talk to everyone who is listening again next Sunday. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you, Alicia. Enjoy.